0: Most people are turned on to the dangers of high fructose corn syrup, but well, I mean, what if I told you that fruit juice concentrate or fruit sugar is even higher in fructose?
1: Hi everyone, I'm Morgan, co-founder and president of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today, I'm getting the scoop on sugar and kids from Dr. Michael Gorin and Emily Ventura, co-authors of the book Sugarproof. Dr. Gorin is a professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles and the program director for diabetes and obesity at the Saban Research Institute. Dr. Gorin has been researching sugar and its effects on kids for 30 years and has published over 350 peer-reviewed journals. Emily is an experienced nutrition educator, public health advocate, writer, and cook. She completed her master's in public health and her PhD in health behavior research at the University of Southern California. She was selected as a Fulbright scholar to teach public health nutrition in Italy and now lives in the UK where she works as a writer, recipe developer, and mother to two young boys. Before we begin, a quick reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's zone and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hello, Dr. Gorin and Emily, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi Morgan, lovely to see you.
1: Yeah, you guys as well. I'm so excited. We were just um, chatting. I have two boys. I know you guys have kids too. So the topic of sugar and raising children is just like on the top of everyone's mind who's health oriented. So tell me a little bit, how did you guys meet? I know you just co-authored a book together. Give me the background on how Sugarproof came to be.
0: Sure, uh, so Emily, I don't know, lost count of the years. she can she can give the exact numbers, but Emily did her graduate work in my lab, probably 15 years ago, something like that. Um, did some of the work that we talk about in sugar proof as part of her graduate work, and this is this is a topic I've been researching all my career for you know almost 30 years now. and uh, we stayed in touch and since emily's also a recipe developer and uh educator uh decided when I was looking for a co-author she would be a terrific partner so we teamed up for the book um which was published last year
1: i love it i love it so emily you're a recipe developer like tell me more about that that sounds like the best job ever
2: <laughs> i've always loved to cook it's been a creative outlet for me and um Part of it was because I I grew up in a family where cooking wasn't really, I mean, we sort of ate, we ate home cooked food, but it wasn't really inspired, you know, it was just sort of, or convenience foods mixed in with some really, you know, sort of bland (laughs) home cooked food. So I just got into it because I wanted to learn more. I wanted to eat, you know, different, different foods and try different flavors. And so I got into it. Um, quite young and then I ended up working at the Edible Schoolyard in Berkeley, the garden and kitchen project created by Alice Waters and just saw the transformative effects that um, gardening and cooking with simple homegrown foods has on children in terms of their um, enthusiasm for eating well. And I I decided I wanted to become a nutrition educator and then I went on to do my graduate work, um, my master's in public health and my PhD in health behavior with Michael at USC.
1: So amazing. I mean, I have, I was just messaging uh, this man I met at the farmer's market. We just moved to Florida and he's coming to set up my home garden because I'm like really obsessed with this idea of being able to grow food and get my kids involved in the process. So tell me a little bit more about that garden you mentioned in Berkeley, this program.
2: Well, it's, it's sort of known as like the, the flagship garden, uh, school garden program. And Alice Waters um, has been just such a food revolutionary through her restaurant that now has been um, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, and just coming back to basics and, and getting back to the idea that if you um, are eating in season and eating locally grown foods, you really don't have to do too much to those ingredients to make them taste good. Um, and just giving kids the actual opportunity to grow things and seeing, you know, um, what they taste like when they're freshly harvested and in season is is really transformative. And so that's happening in this um, school in Berkeley called Martin Luther King, and it's um, it's inspired garden school garden programs across the world and. Um, you know, they've they've done a lot of um, work to just show how you can incorporate those kind of lessons into pretty much any topic within the classroom. So, you know, you'd be learning math in the kitchen or history in the kitchen, science in the kitchen, um, and certainly also in the garden as well. I love it. So it's, I- it's just sort of an integra- integrative approach to um, healthy eating.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And Dr. Gordon, just backing up a second. So you said you've been studying this your whole career, but like, how did you develop the interest to even go down this path? Like what led to the, I don't know, the motivation to to get here?
0: Yeah, it's, it's been a long journey. Um, But my, my PhD was in biochemistry. And so I, you know, as part of my studies, I examined how the body processes food and how it metabolizes food, how it converts the stuff we put in our mouth into energy and how that uh, affects the body, how it's processed. Um, I've always been fascinated by that whole body approach. And um, I was also always interested in the process of growth in children and how children regulate that process of growth. How do they know how much to grow, when to grow? and so on, and um, at some point I got interested in the issue of obesity and excess weight gain in childhood and was one of the first researchers to really dig into that topic. And that kind of evolved over the years also to look at how we don't just wake up at age 45 or 50 with heart disease or diabetes, we learned through our work and others that that process of what we call chronic disease risk or long-term progressive diseases is actually established early in life. And so a lot of our research was looking at how um, that process of chronic disease development is seated during the developmental years. And in that work, uh, Emily was part of it early on and we've just kind of followed the path we found we got interested in diet, which obviously plays a role and we were looking just very generally at the role of diet and how diet affects weight gain and metabolic risk. And we just kept finding that sugar uh, kept popping up in, that, in those studies as a, as a major uh, contributing factor. And we've done all kinds of longitudinal studies, intervention studies in kids. And so the story just evolved Now, that's not to say that sugar is the only problem, but from our work, we learned that it was a major contributing factor and one that we could uh, quite easily, in theory, address to reduce. And this was happening at the same time as the explosion of sugar in the food environment, which uh, has become fairly ubiquitous now in processed foods. 70% of foods in the supermarket have added sugars, 80% of. 80% 80% of foods targeted towards children have some type of added sugars. So there's this mismatch between the food environment that's evolved and the knowledge about how sugar is really affecting kids and affecting kids differently than than adults in many ways because of that critical growth theory that's going on.
1: Interesting, and was there? were you like expecting to find that or were you surprised at how impactful the sugar consumption was?
0: It was fairly uh, surprising at first in terms of its unique role, in that we were looking at many, many factors, not just diet. Um, so, and then within diet itself, we were looking at all different factors within diet. Uh, and the fact that sugar came out of those analyses um, time and time again just kept surprising me over the years oh sugar is a major factor in this study sugar is the major factor in that study so yeah it was somewhat surprising and then kind of the story kind of coming together just made so much sense and there was a cohesive story there that I felt compelled to tell because nobody's really reading our research papers that much And we need to have much more rapid translation of the research into public knowledge. And so I felt compelled to tell the story and get it out there.
1: Yeah, makes sense. Emily, what was some of the research that was like most surprising to you or like most unexpected? i was curious. Stuff you worked on or stuff you've seen come out.
2: The study that, that, um, one of the studies that I worked on that we talk a lot in the book about is a study that Michael designed where we went and just bought different convenience, different, um, food products, you know, marketed toward children and drinks. And we even went through the drive through at different fast food restaurants and bought soft drinks and then sent them to a laboratory to have them analyzed and, um, found, you know, that what, what we weren't expecting, which, um, was that there's higher fructose concentration in those products. And I thought that was a really interesting study and one that's, um, definitely been informative for the book.
1: Yeah. Interesting. When you say higher, you mean higher than was stated, like on the nutritionals? Well, a lot of times,
2: you know, there there weren't nutritionals to start with. So we may have known, you know, the total grams of sugar, but um, the manufacturers weren't required to disclose how much fructose. And there's sort of been a mystery around actually what percentage of fructose is in high fructose corn syrup. Oh, okay. Michael can elaborate quite a bit more on that
0: as well. So basically, if a food is labeled with high fructose corn syrup, most people know to look for that now, or even if it's labeled with fruit sugar, that's a pretty generic term. We don't know what that means in terms of the actual sugar composition. There's kind of a belief that that sugar is sugar, but really what we found in the research um, is that that's not quite true, that different sugars have different effects on the body. Interesting. And fru- fructose is one sugar that has a very, very different effect on the body as as compared to glucose, even though they are chemically identical, even though they provide the same number of calories, and even though fructose connected to glucose is what we know as regular sugar, different sugars have different amounts of fructose relative to glucose.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. So what does that mean for fruit?
0: Yeah, it gets a little confusing there. And um, for fruit, really, we don't have any concerns because eating fruit, uh, generally, unless you're eating a whole pile of fruit all at once, which rarely happens, is really not an issue because um, you get lots of other beneficial effects from the fruit, like the fiber and the phytonutrients. We even use whole fruits as sweeteners in some of our recipes. The issue is once you extract the juice from the fruit, once you liberate those sugars, like in fruit juice or apple juice or fruit juice concentrates, you really concentrate the sugars. And the sugars then are high, you know, it's a high fructose sugar typically, and you lose the fiber, you lose the phytonutrients. So fruit juice is a very different story than eating an apple.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. My son's like a, fruitarian, I think at this point, no, I mean, he eats, (laughs) I try to get a lot of like fat and protein and all the things, but he loves fruit. So sometimes there's a lot of berries consumption in our house. I should have like the the berry companies before I had kids because holy moly, (laughs) the amount you spend on berries with kids is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and berries would come out near the top of favorable fruits because they have a pretty beneficial ratio of, of fiber to sugar so they're higher in fiber and, and lower in, in, in sugar and have lots of you know generally packed with phytonutrients so okay. as compared to like yeah yeah like a you know watermelon or or, or even apples but you know your son's not going to eat two or three apples at one sitting um no if, if they did that would be could, could be an issue yeah, yeah. okay but generally we don't have an issue with limits on fruit unless it's um, so it really,
1: your studies really just proved the negative effects of high fructose corn syrup. I mean, that was the big. It was
0: noticeably worse. Well,
1: than see, regular sugar, not
0: just high, not just high fructose corn syrup. That's that's kind of, kind of a, a little bit of a, of a messaging issue because most people are turned on to the dangers of high fructose corn syrup. But well, I mean, what if I told you that fruit juice concentrate or fruit sugar? Is even higher in fructose than high fructose corn syrup. Really? And it is. Crazy. But it has this, you know, health halo around it. It sounds good. Yeah. Um, people have this perception that high fructose corn syrup, it's bad, it's dangerous, don't want to eat it. Fruit sugar.
1: When you say fruit sugar, like give me an example of where I would most commonly find that.
0: Well, you'll see it on. On, on like energy bars or uh, even in yogurts or Emily help me out where we've seen commercially that made
2: smoothies often
0: yeah, yeah. and it'll so, just- and, and that, there's two there's over 200 different names for sugar and many of those yeah. names are kind of fruit-based sugars. so you know if, if you look at a cliff bar for example or any energy bar it may have four or five different types of sugars on there and what Food companies do that because they don't have to just list sugar at the top of their ingredient list.
1: Yeah,
0: they can have lower amounts of different types of sugar, like blueberry juice concentrate. Um, and blueberry juice concentrate is kind of the same as um, as you know corn syrup. It's just the, the the syrup you get if you boil down blueberries for long enough mm. and toss out all the other stuff that's in there.
1: Fascinating! I and wow, that's so interesting that it has more fructose than high fructose corn syrup. I often say, yeah,
0: because the sugars in, a, in an apple—the best known example—I mean, apples are the sugars in apples are seventy percent fructose, okay, on average. Interesting. I, I mean, I guess what I-
1: gets
2: so confusing too, you know, as a parent, uh, I start to realize a lot of these products say, you know, fruit juice sweetened, and you know, you think, oh, that sounds pretty good. You know, we start getting some vitamins. Along with that, um, but then when you start to actually look at the ingredient list, it's just really full of different fruit juice concentrates, and then often mixed with, you know, um, even artificial sweeteners as well within the same product. And so, the the messaging can be really tricky to navigate as a parent. And one of our goals in the book was just to try and simplify you know, make it easier for for parents and other caregivers to quickly look at a label or a product and and realize what's really in this. And is this something that I want my child to have?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So would you say then it's most important to focus on like total grams of sugar if you're looking to kind of rein it in?
0: Uh, Well, I think the added sugars and the new uh, food labels will differentiate the natural sugars from the added sugar, so like, for example, in a yogurt, you'll have the sugar from from the dairy, from the milk, and that's lactose, that's a natural sugar, and that's fine. Um, But the new food labels will differentiate the added sugar, so any sugars that food companies will add as a sweetener uh, to the yogurt, or the energy bar, or the ketchup, or the peanut butter, those are the ones to really look out for. We're really interested in looking out for added sugars And types of sugars.
1: Yeah. Now backing up a little bit, you mentioned like you have these longitudinal studies. So you're seeing that this disease is starting like early in childhood. Like give me an example of some things maybe, you know, I feel like people associate sugar consumption with like behavior issues, like with kids, that's pretty like common, but what are some of these things that you're seeing long-term that maybe people don't realize is associated with an increased consumption of sugar?
0: Yeah, the sugar really affects the body from from head to toe. Um, you mentioned behavior that could also be related to you know, memory, focus, learning, development. But in terms of the chronic diseases, we're talking about um, heart disease. Obviously, kids aren't dying in large numbers from heart disease, but they they have high they may have high cholesterol or high blood pressure, um, starting to develop type two diabetes which used to be called adult-onset diabetes, and now it's age of onset. It's becoming younger and younger. And again, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes in children is increasing. It's still not that high, thankfully, but we see pre-diabetes, higher blood sugars, uh, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which wasn't even a disease uh, 10 years ago, is now becoming quite prevalent and is related to sugar consumption and the way fructose is metabolized because uh, fructose is metabolized in the liver where it's actually converted to fat. And um, that fat can get stuck in the liver and cause the disease called fatty liver disease, which really destroys the ability of the liver to function, which is pretty important, Um, but also that can contribute to dyslipidemia. So again, you might not see heart disease in a child, but you might see cholesterol levels increasing or triglyceride levels increasing and that can be related to uh, sugar consumption. Crazy. And then there's the inflammatory conditions that are also on the rise, which can be related not solely to sugar in this particular case, but a contributing factor like asthma, uh, poor skin uh, and so on. And of course, nowadays we must have to talk about COVID So blood sugar is the biggest predictor of how severe the reaction is to COVID infection.
1: Yeah. Oh, I know that is, that is nuts. And when you say blood sugar, you're, so you're saying like someone might not be obese, but they might have like poor blood sugar response or something like that. Are you talking about like blood sugar as measured by a glucometer, that type of a thing?
0: Yeah. I think that differentiation is important. So I think there's a kind of a common belief that for kids, everything's okay unless they're overweight or heavy, but a lot of these conditions can be evolving even before that's um, apparent. Um, and by blood glucose response, you know, it, it is very hard to measure, um, especially in kids, but you can measure it by looking at kids. You know, if, if, if your kids are bouncing off the wall, they'll probably have a high blood sugar and if they're rolling around on the floor uh, in a state of misery and, and hangry, hangry they probably have a low blood sugar. Interesting. Uh, so it's all to do, just like we know for adults, stable blood sugar is important for function. The same is also absolutely true for kids, maybe more true because kids are actually more susceptible to sugar highs and lows because they're much more e- efficient at metabolizing the sugar because they need it for, for growth. And so if your kid feeds a kid fed, tongue tie there, if you feed kids a high carbohydrate meal, they'll have a rapid surge in blood glucose, but then it will fall rapidly too because they're so efficient at taking that sugar out of the blood. They need it for energy, they need it for growth. And so they'll go hypoglycemic and crash, and you'll you'll see that. In your kids, in the way in their disposition, so that stabilization of blood sugar in kids is really what sugar proof is, is is about.
1: Yeah, I I know you guys have kids. Each of you, I think I have two kids, but I have often like debated the moral implications of slapping a continuous glucose monitor on both of my boys just because I'm so curious like to see what is <laughs> what is happening yeah. and that it doesn't hurt that much to insert I feel like it would be totally fine. No,
0: no we're, do, we're actually well we're doing studies uh, in older kids and teenagers. There's, there's new data coming out but I am so curious too about the response in babies and young yeah. kids. And so we have a couple of uh, projects that we're about to launch um, to, to to do exactly that because that's that's my current, that's a major curiosity of mine right yeah. now.
1: Well, if you need how... test subjects, I have a, an 18 month <laughs> old and a three year old, and I'm like, I'll put that levels or whatever freestyle Libre 2 right on their lower <laughs> abdomen or upper arm, and we'll get to it. We're
0: we so really crazy. we really have so little data on on that question and we just take it for granted that yeah. know, whatever we're whatever they're feeding them that their blood glucose will be nice and steadily regulated but i don't think that's the case i think they're probably even more susceptible to those highs and lows which you know you can deal with a behavioral issue on the spot um, and day to day it could be okay to deal with that but really what we're concerned about is the long term implications of that 10 20 30 years down the road
1: yeah Okay, Emily, what's the recommended grams per day for a child? Well, in the book, we break it down by
2: age and gender, because a lot of the, you know, organizations that give recommendations to give one recommendation for children in general, and, you know, the range between 2 and 18, in our opinion, is just so large that, Um, we wanted to to give something a little bit more specific as a guideline. So we used, um, Michael came up with, um, actually as part of a a study that you did, right, Michael, where you um, came up with more age-specific guidelines that are in accordance still with what the World Health Organization is suggesting. Um, And that ranges, so for zero to two years. um, Looking
0: for it in the the book, we have a nice table in the book. A table in the book, yes.
2: So for zero to two years, um, the recommendation is no added sugar, uh, and then, um,
0: depending- which by the way is completely consistent with the new dietary guidelines for America, which we talked about in the book, you know, many years ago. But just this year, the new dietary guidelines also recommend zero added sugars between zero and two years of age. Interesting.
2: Yeah and then from there ranging you know from 2 up to 16 plus it would it ranges from about 3 to 7 teaspoons of added sugar per day um, and so
0: put page, put six, that
1: page into
0: 67 page
1: 67
2: in <laughs> yeah. yeah. sugar your parents. proof for all yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it can be hard to visualize that. And so, you know, these are just guidelines. We're not saying that you go around counting how many grams of sugar your child's having on a day-to-day basis, but it is really helpful to know that if, you know, if your child is younger, say a toddler, they can easily be getting that amount of added sugar in their, you know, morning cereal alone. Um, depending on how much they're eating of it or, you know, yeah. a small serving of cereal plus a small yogurt or plus a granola bar. And so it can just, it can start to add up really fast. Um, and it's just sometimes, you know, you, you don't feel like your child actually had a treat or dessert or something overly sweet, but the sugar is just infused into so many of the products that are marketed toward kids that um, it, it piles up quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is just good to know information, right? So if you know that your 10 year old's uh, recommendation for added sugar is what, 10 or 15 grams and you pick up a breakfast cereal and you notice, oh, this has 10 grams of added sugar per serving. Hopefully it will kind of help send a message and maybe you'll put it down and look for one with, with less added sugar per serving. So like Emily says, we're not by no means wanting or expecting I think it would be very harmful actually to sit there every day and count how much added sugar. It's just general information that can be useful day to day as you go shopping and decide what to buy.
1: Yeah, for sure. Some motivation to just have some guidelines. I think that's very helpful. Yeah.
0: What about Stevie? Guidelines and- are, I mean, that's so important. So it's all about guidelines, right? Yeah. It's not like we're say, giving you a, a set menu or a set. Number of sh- sugar is just like guidelines. And one guideline is just less sugar. That's like such an easy guideline. So if you have the choice, just go for the option of less sugar.
1: Yeah. Is there, I, I have a few questions on particular sweeteners. So I'm curious your opinion on stevia and monk fruit. And I'm also curious on like honey and maple syrup versus, you know, high fructose corn syrup or sugar or fructose or now fruit sugar, which I, is definitely on my radar after today's conversation.
0: Yeah, there's there there's definitely a, a hierarchy, like <clears throat> right there. I mean, people say I hear people say all the time, sugar is sugar, but you've just given a whole range of sugars right there. Are they all the same? No, I mean they're different chemical structures. They're different. They're metabolized differently by the body. So, um, and you covered a lot of ground there. Um, sweeteners is a whole other story. We can get into that in a minute. But in terms of the added sugars, uh, honey, maple syrup coconut sugar, those are still added sugars, but those might be our preferred sources of added sugar um, because they're less processed. They're still, in the end, at the end of the day, the same as ordinary sucrose in terms of their chemical composition. The high fructose corn syrup and the fruit-based sugars are higher in fructose, so we think they are a bit more problematic. There's lots of evidence to show that fructose is the more harmful sugar of the body, in the body compared to glucose. Um, So there's definitely some kind of hierarchy. Uh, In terms of sweeteners, that's, that's, do you want me to launch into that now? Because- Yeah,
1: yeah, give me the, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because um, those, you know, you mentioned stevia and monk fruit, and those are very popular right now and getting a lot of, very popular because they're quote unquote all natural, uh, which of course they're, derived from natural products, stevia derived from the stevia leaf and monk fruit from um, the the, the fruit. Uh, The fruit alone is quite bitter. Um, And so monk fruit sugar is the purified sugar which is processed to eliminate the bitter taste and to highlight the the sweet taste. Uh, And stevia, obviously the active ingredient is riboideside A which is purified from the stevia leaf. Both are hundreds of times sweeter, so you, need to, you can use less of them and they're not absorbed, so they're calorie free. But the issue is really, are they really calorie free? Because studies show that children and adults who regularly consume products with these sweeteners end up consuming more calories throughout the rest of the day and more sugar. And the issue is that they don't resolve craving for food or craving for sweetness. Uh, In fact, a colleague of mine just published a paper on sucralose, which is the number one sweetener in the US, um, looking at the neural response in the brain with functional MRI and showed that sucralose lights up the neural networks much brighter uh, and invokes um, a, a, a need or, or a compulsion to eat more, basically, and so, and this is what we're seeing that those products at the time of that individual cracker or cookie or whatever you're eating may have less calories and less sugar, but maybe you know that, and you're going to eat two of them or three of them, and end up eating more, or you're still craving more sweetness later in the day.
1: Interesting.
0: So that's the issue. And then we just don't know how they're affecting health. They're they're not absorbed, so they're affecting gut health and the gut microbiome may be affected. And just long-term, we don't know enough, especially in children, how they're affecting their long-term growth and development. They may turn out to be perfectly okay, that's fine, but um, I'd like to see more data on that. Um, So we're pretty reserved about their use. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. Especially in children. I'd much rather like if you're going to bake a cookie tomorrow or tonight or this weekend, Mm -hmm. I'd much rather just use less sugar than replace that sugar with monk fruit. Yeah. Um, Because taste is also an issue. And for many people, those those sweeteners just don't taste the same. I don't like the way they taste myself. Some people don't mind the taste and that's fine. But taste is also an issue. I think it's also about getting kids to appreciate and love natural tastes, Mm -hmm. not fake tastes that come with sweeteners. And that's why many of the recipes that Emily developed, we used, you know, in our blueberry muffins, there's no added sugar, they're sweetened with the banana and the blueberries. And so we like to use actual fruits in baking to introduce the natural sweetness.
1: That's great. I I can totally, I can totally do that with my kids. I just need something to put in my like coffee or my matcha tea in the morning.
0: (laughs) Yeah. This comes up a lot. And I think, you know, is that, you know, a a drop or two of stevia or uh, in your, in your tea or coffee is, 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 you know, that's probably okay. Um, Or drop of honey in that case is probably okay too. So, um, you know, we're not, not here to like, Nickel and dime you over <laughs> drops of honey here or there. You know we're really talking about the the yeah. the, um, the major culprits, for the sure. sodas, the juices, the, the 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 sweet treats throughout the day that can be made just as deliciously with just a little less sugar.
1: Yeah, I I, I totally appreciate that. Okay, Emily, what are some hacks for us as a mom, like for blunting? The blood sugar effect or is there anything you can do if you're at a birthday party you have no control what your kids eat and you're just thinking like you're stressed like is there anything <laughs> you can do pre and post sugar consumption to help kind of blunt the effects definitely so one
2: one big tip is to have your kids eat something savory first so either before you go to the party or if you're already at the party, if there's something savory to have, you know, if there's some carrot sticks and hummus or if there's, you know, some slice of pizza, even just have them eat something that's not sweet before they go for the other, you know, the other things. Um, and then just helping your, your kids kind of navigate, um, you know, my kids know that, um if they're going to go to a party you know they don't need to sample everything sweet all in one party because there's going to be plenty of parties and i don't know if your kids are like mine but it seems like every single week there's another one um and so i try and tell my kids yes have something but you don't have to have everything all in one you know one party pick what you most want to have and i try and get my kids to um think about not having the sweet beverage so if you know here in the UK squash is really popular it's like a a concentrate that's added to water and it turns out sort of like a it's like a juice-based drink Um, and there's always squash and there's always water and so my kids know that when they go to parties they have what we have at home which is water Um, and then you know then I know that they're not having the, the sweet drink plus the cake and you know um So I think just kind of raising your kids so that they can, you know, when they're really young, you help them navigate that because maybe you're the one pouring the drink, but then ultimately they're going to be the one going up to the drink station and helping themselves. So kind of raising them with the philosophy to think, well, okay, water's my drink and then I'll enjoy some cake and, and, you know, not have the juice and the cake and the, you know, gummy bears and the brownies and the chocolate chip cookies all in one, all in one sitting. Yeah, no, I like it. I that. try and make them, you know, feel like they're never restricted so they can always, you know, they can always participate and have, you know, what they want they most want to have. And
0: or, or and offer do, to bring offer, offer to bring stuff home because in my experience, you bring it home, you put it at the back of the cupboard, and you know, they forget about it. I
1: like that one. Just That's wrap it off in the
0: napkin and it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I don't know where I put that. Where did it yeah. go? <laughs> yeah, that's a good
2: yeah. one. Yeah, well, it's funny too because there, it always seems like there's more sweets than there are days to have them. And my kids are regularly sent home with gummy bears and things from parties, and, and it really does pile up. So we have a bag of this stuff, and I try not to throw it away without you know getting their consent but actually my nine-year-old um, the other day said, mom, I think it's time we get rid of some of this stuff. And they said, I completely agree. So they sort of sorted through it. And then we almost you we know, this joke. We said, well, should this be for trick-or-treaters? <laughs> Gosh, Recycle this candy. But yeah, it's just, you know, you don't know what to do with it sometimes. And, um, but I think the more you get your kids involved and, you know, help them be the ones that are sort of or calling some of the shots, um, the better it is because then when they're not with you, they can call the shots on their own.
1: Yeah. No, makes sense. Yeah. I, I knew this. I had this one mom friend, this was years ago. And she told her kids that they were allergic to dyes like blue dye and red dye. So they weren't, I mean, well, I honestly, I kind of think all kids are allergic to that, but they weren't like officially diagnosed with this allergy. So they just never ate like candy, like M&Ms or gummy bears or anything that was artificially dyed. And I remember taking a mental note being like, Oh, it's kind of an interesting (laughs) manipulative strategy for navigating like those early years with the candy. It's so hard to let go of the control and involve them in the process and trust them that they're going to be able to like handle navigating it on their own. For me, Mm -hmm. you know, like I I really envy that you're able to like, keep it in a bag and I would just be throwing that shit away like, <laughs> immediately. I mean. I- well, I have before, but you know, yeah. I think the other
2: thing too is, is, you know, letting them sometimes overdo it on occasion, you know, and then, then using that as a moment to talk with them about it yeah. and say, you know, okay, well, how do you feel? Like, you know, describe to me how you feel and what did you eat and you know, what, you know, what could you do differently? What could we do differently the next time? And um, you know, this there, you know, there are going to be times where they kind of they overdo it, just like all of us have, you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any other hacks, Dr. Goren, from raising kids? Did you were, did you have all this? How old are your kids? I'm not, I i can not remember.
0: One's not a kid anymore. One just turned 19 is in, okay. and is in college, so that's that's just happening happening in the last month or two. So that's a new transition. Uh, my other daughter is 15.
1: And did you implement, like, were you worried about this when they were growing up? You're like doing all this research. Are you thinking like, holy smokes, what are these kids eating? Or how did it influence like raising of your own children?
0: I think we were, I was less further along and, um, and I, and I get, you know, I hear this a lot from moms. Oh, I wish I'd known 15 years ago. I feel so guilty. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. Um, this is, this is an evolving field and we have to kind of, you know, look forward, not backwards. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, I mean, we generally have a fairly, um, a fairly decent uh, food environment at home. We like to cook as a family. Um, we don't have a lot of processed foods around. Um, but, you know, at a certain stage, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. I mean a certain stage my kids started hanging out with their friends at the coffee shop or the mall and after school and stuff. And I think they maybe had a little bit in the back of their minds what Emily was just talking about. They had a certain amount of ingrained uh, self-awareness and self-control, but doesn't mean to say they don't uh, enjoy uh, lots of different sweet treat opportunities. In fact, I remember my daughter was in a play and um, she literally had her first can of Coca-Cola on stage in a play, and I think the director was winding <laughs> me up. I think he did, and uh, he she was literally playing uh, a Mormon kid who uh, met this guy, and he gave her a can of Coke. And I like I was I didn't know it was coming, and she literally popped the soda on stage, and so it was like completely priceless moment. Yeah, uh, she didn't care for her very much, and I think um, but that doesn't mean to say she doesn't like sweet drinks. Yeah, just didn't like so. So you know, I think we do our best, and um, we like to enjoy food and like to enjoy sweet treats as well, and we do that as a family, um, you know, when, when we can.
1: Yeah. No, makes sense. Is there like. If you're having your own kid's birthday party, it's like ice cream better than cake. Or do you guys just not worry at that point? Like you're just focused on more like the 80% every day.
2: Well, when my kids were young enough to not, to not be, you know, asking for a specific dessert, I would, I'd make things that didn't have any sugar in them, um, added sugar. And those are similar to the recipes that are in our book. So we have cake options in the book, like that there's goes. a chocolate hazelnut pear cake. That's great. An orange pistachio cake. Um, so I didn't see the need to introduce it before they were actually asking for it, you know? Um, and then as they start to get older, um, I just let them request what they want on their birthdays. And oftentimes they do request one of those cakes because they really like them, but if they request something else, then that's what we'll have. So one year, it was last year, my son um, asked for creme brulee because he had seen it before and he was really curious and wanted to try it. So we made it and I did put less sugar in it, um, you know, because there's sugar both in the custard and on the top. So I just reduced the amount that I put in both. And um, it was a funny experience because he enjoyed it, but he recognized he tried it and said, wow, this is really sweet. And he enjoyed it, but he didn't finish the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was, you know, it was a good opportunity for him to feel like he could, you know, he can, he can have whatever he wants. I let him yeah. have what he wants, but, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, um, they really, my kids really do enjoy the lower sugar, um, options.
1: So aside from sugar, like, what are you both, what's like a normal day, like, or an optimal day for kids? Are you guys like aligned with any other particular diet as far as like ingredients we're including versus excluding? Is there kind of like a, Typical day in the life of a perfect sugar proof kid. General um, parameters.
0: Yeah, I, I think what we one of our messages is, is that you know we don't. I don't pre- presume what type of diet works in your house or with your kids. Um, and sugar proof works if you're a vegan. Sugar proof works if you're a meat eater. Um, I think the message is just try to reduce sugar, whatever dietary pattern you're falling because everybody's so different. I mean, in my house, I have one daughter who's a vegetarian. I have one daughter who loves meat. I do intermittent fasting. So I fast most days of the week. So it is my wife till, you know, lunchtime. So we've got lots of things going on, but, and and that's fine. We can do that. Our kids are a little older now, so we can be a bit more independent in that way. But the message really is whatever you're doing, you could, there's always room to reduce sugar, right? And so that's, that's the key. And, you know, I might say, well, for breakfast, I like eggs and someone say, oh, eggs are bad. Uh, they're not good to cause cancer. I mean, that's fine. If that's what you believe, that's, that's fine. So I, we're not here to like, you know, push any one particular dietary approach because uh, it's very personal, I think. And, and, and it is, it's not only personal as individual, everybody responds differently to diet, totally. but everybody will benefit from reducing sugar.
1: Yeah, I love that. Okay, so and along
2: just- with that too, we also suggest, you know, um, increasing fiber through increasing yeah. vegetables and also the diversity of plant foods that you eat. So the diversity of different plant foods and then also protein. So whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or, you know, meat eating, um, paleo, you know, whatever your kind of rough diet your family follows, you know, we do suggest trying to, to focus on adding in quality protein, adding in fiber, um, and then lowering sugar um, along with that to kind of balance um,
0: blood sugar levels and provide more steady energy. Yeah.
1: And typically our recipes what that are translates
0: really flexible. To, yeah, and typically that translates to less processed food, which again, can't be bad, that, that can't be harmful, and there has to be benefits of you if you can move away from processed foods. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Doesn't doesn't have to be entirely, you know, one step at a time.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, real quick, are you guys following Dr. Tim Spector's work? Are you following that, Emily, in the UK? Yes,
2: yeah. yes, I am. And yeah. actually, Michael did an Instagram live with him that was really informative. Oh, cool.
0: Yeah, big, I had big fan him on of the his podcast.
1: I know he's got it's like so cool. I felt like, yeah, it was fascinating.
0: Yeah, my wife and I just also just finished doing the Zoe program oh, together. Wow. It's kind of interesting, but he's he's pretty incredible. Yeah, uh, His work, his research that he's doing right now, I think he's yeah. uh, fantastic.
1: My husband and I did Zoe as well. I had like excellent blood sugar control. You'll be very proud of me, Dr. Gorn, and good blood fat. But my microbiome, I mean, I don't eat. I'm pretty like crazy. Like I would say on the level of like crazy on the health scale, I'm like kind of up there unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever way you look at it, but my microbiome is just not great. I was a C-section baby. You know, I think there's like a lot of stuff that feeds into that, but it really was like a kick for me to like, okay, I got to get my 30 different, you know, plant Mm. foods in the diet every week. Um, so I can really kind of help with the microbiome diversity. Same for my husband, except he had good blood sugar, but he had actually had bad the blood fat control. How did yours look? I'm very curious. How were your results from the ZOE study?
0: Um, my blood sugar is fairly well regulated. Uh, one reason I was interested in doing it was because uh, actually my blood sugar is on the verge of pre-diabetes. My hemoglobin A1C is right at the lowest cusp. And so that's why I first wore a glucose monitor. And what it, what I learned is that uh, my blood glucose runs high on the high side but it's pretty stable. I don't get a lot of spikes and drops. Um, And I learned, you know, what to put on my toast in the morning or whatever to keep my blood sugar fairly even. Uh, My wife is a bit more of a spiker and dipper and she's much more prone to hypoglycemic dips. Um, Her fat response was solid. Mine was not so good. That's something I learned about Really, wasn't really looking out for that, and my microbiome was also kind of not the best, not the worst. Got it. Um, okay, so
1: what are you putting on your toast? You can't just leave us with that cliffhanger and you can tell
0: us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- 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 we have a whole chapter in the book about this kind of stuff. These are just like very simple, basic hacks. I even have the I have the glucose response chart in the book, but um. Yeah. So when, I mean, I love a good piece of toast in the morning. So, I mean, I will put butter and leave it at that or a ricotta or thick kefir yogurt that I like to get from a farmer's market. Sometimes so it's not like the kefir drink. It's like a thick kefir yeah. yogurt. Um, I'll sometimes put berries on there or smash some strawberries on there um, or a piece of smoked salmon, um, those types of things so it's the same with pancakes there's no there's no rule that says you have to drown pancakes with maple syrup you know you can put yogurt on there or fruit compot you know i'll boil get a bag of frozen blueberries from the freezer and just boil it down and make a little fruit compot and throw that on top as well sometimes
1: love it love it emily what's your diet looking like these days
2: Well, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is surprisingly common. It's like one in 10 women have it. Um, And so I have a really high insulin response um, to carbohydrates. So I have to be really careful about um, balancing out the carbohydrates that I do eat with protein and fat. And especially in the morning, I don't do well with a high carbohydrate breakfast. I really, it just sets me off. I'm irritable and hungry about 30 minutes later if I have any carbohydrates first thing. So I usually, I have always have a savory breakfast, um, always vegetables of some sort, um, oftentimes eggs with like spinach and avocado or arugula. Uh, I've gotten really into um, smoked mackerel and um like kippers here are popular so that's been a really good breakfast for me and uh, i love
1: kippers what is kippers i never heard of
2: kippers are it's smoked herring and it's um super good and affordable okay. and high protein and my kids like them now too um got a lot of flavor uh, and so very
0: scottish of you
2: i know <laughs> yes, i
0: know yes
2: yeah. So this is something I never had. You know, I lived in Italy previously. And then before that, you know, the States, I'm from California. So I never would have you know, thought of this as a breakfast option. Um, but or sometimes we have leftovers. So like if we have chicken curry for you know night and uh, the night before, like, me and the kids will have that in the morning sometimes. Um, so I try and kind of expand their breakfast horizons to just, you know, any type of food. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the life-changing loaf um, recipe from My New Roots, which is um, um, an account that and, and cook that I've followed for a while that I really like. And it's basically, it's a bread, but it's made mostly of nuts and seeds. And it's oh. held together with a small amount of oats and psyllium husk fiber and it's super easy recipe to make. And I make that almost every week. And I have that as toast. Say that
1: one more time. I got to look this up. Yeah. <laughs>
2: The um, life-changing loaf by My New Roots.
1: Yeah, it's so good.
2: Or we'll make this bread that's made out of um, soaked buckwheat groats and chia seeds that um, my six-year-old is particularly into that one. So he'll have that in, in the morning as toast. And it's um, very high fiber and very satisfying. It doesn't tend to spike my blood sugar.
1: Love it. And I'm assuming there's more of those recipes in the book, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of recipes and all the recipes in the book um, are, you know, They don't have added sugar. They've got lots of beneficial, you know, fruits, vegetables, um, protein balanced with fiber and healthy fat as well and easy. So, you know, that's another thing. I am, I'm a single mom. My husband passed away right around the time when uh, we first got the book deal. And so when I was developing all these recipes, time was really at the forefront of my mind. And, you know, a lot of parents, you know, were busy for so many different reasons, you know, work or and, um, you know, just just time, you know, having time to take care of everything in your household, um, even if you don't work outside of the house. That really is a full time job. So we try to make the recipes as easy as, as possible.
0: Amazing. also, we have a lot of new recipes Emily's been very busy since the book was published. We probably have more recipes, more new recipes uh, on our website than we do have on, in the book. So we're, 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 we're developing stuff all the time. I say we, mostly Emily. I just get to try them and taste them. That's but uh, for example, Emily just developed a sugar-proof Nutella. Who Ooh. doesn't love Nutella? Yeah. And this one has no added sugars. Um, right. We'll be talking about our sugar-proof pumpkin pie again pretty soon, right? That was a huge favorite last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that, we try to take family favorites, kids' favorites, and try to just recreate it in a way that is just as tasty and delicious, but without the added sugars. That's kind of our, our mission.
1: Very cool. Well, I know you guys have a hard stop. I'm just gonna ask you both one quick question. This is my favorite question to ask people, who come on the podcast and then we can wrap it up. But what is something most people don't know
0: about you? Okay, uh, um, I'm Scottish. Probably can't tell from my accent, but I lost my accent a long time ago. I can put it on at any time, though, if you want. Yes, Um, I love to. Yeah, I love to play tennis. That's my thing. So that's a great sport for me because I find it very good for my agility, my endurance. It's just as much of a mental game for me as it is a physical game. So it's great for for stress relief uh, as well. I also love
1: tennis. I could I'm just going to subtitle this, like the time I interviewed that Shrek tennis playing sugar doctor researcher, Dr. Gorin. So great. I love the accent. That's okay. right. Yeah. <laughs> Emily. So
2: for me, I think the most common question that I get is what, what heritage uh, am I, or where am I from? Because I've, you know, I've lived in a variety of different places now. And I think that gets confusing for people. Most people pick up on the American accent, but I'm also an Italian citizen because, um, I lived there for a while and my late husband was Italian American. And so we got Italian citizenship um, through him, but now I live in the UK. So I yeah, get a lot of questions about that. Um, <laughs> it's very cool. What brought you to you the more. UK? So his work actually okay. um, brought us here and then I ended up loving it so much. It's yeah. just a great place to be. And I tried moving back to California for a while um, last year with the kids and just decided that I was homesick for the UK. So I decided it. to come back and we really like it here.
1: Amazing. I'm yeah. glad you found your spot. Where in Italy were you? And then we'll wrap up. Bologna, Okay. which was amazing. I
2: mean, I love all of Italy, but food wise, Bologna is just great. It's and very cool. It's really? Yeah. Wonderful place
1: to be. Yeah, my married name is Zanotti, and I have a very clearly Italian um, husband. And we've always talked about like doing that thing where you can go get your Italian citizenship if mm. you have a high enough percentage. Yeah. Well, we should talk
2: about that because I went through
1: all that. Yeah. I need all the information. So definitely we'll have to take that combo offline, but thank you guys so much. It was so amazing to hear what you're up to. I love the book. I have a copy. It's awesome for our readers listening. There's a lot more in here than just um, a lecture on why sugar is bad for your kids. So I think everyone should go out and pick this up. If you have kids or quite honestly, if you don't, because this is something that affects all of us. Why don't you guys wrapping it up? Just give us a little um, tip on where we can find you. If we want to keep up with all the amazing recipes you're creating, Emily and all the work you're doing Dr. Gorin in the lab.
0: Yeah. Well, we can go... Sorry. Go ahead, Emily.
1: Yeah. For the, you know, all the updates, about
2: the recipes in the book, you can find us on Instagram at sugarproof kids and Facebook as
0: well. And if you go to our website, which is sugarproofkids.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. So if you sign up for a newsletter, you'll be the first to know. We send out every other week almost or sometimes weekly, depending on how creative Emily's being, uh, a newsletter with, with new recipes. And you can get the book, Sugarproof, um, wherever it is you're getting books these days, cool. in an actual bookstore, I hope, maybe, or online from different uh, booksellers and it's also available in kindle and audio format as well
1: very cool love it thank you guys and keep up the good work thank you so much thank Morgan. you yeah really thanks Morgan. Thank, you.
0: yeah thanks for having us on appreciate all you're doing yeah it was great